From Kurtco Media. There's no place like Hollywood. Welcome to another very special episode of Hollywood Unscripted Stuck at Home. I'm Jenny Curtis, and today I am incredibly excited to be virtually sitting down with visionary director Julie Taymor. Julie creates thrilling explorations across a wide variety of mediums. She's the force behind the groundbreaking Broadway adaptation of The Lion King, which debuted in 1997 and has achieved the largest worldwide box office gross ever across any entertainment form. It's amazing. Her films include Across the Universe, Frida, the Shakespeare films Titus and the Tempest, and now the Gloria Steinem biopic, The Glorias. Welcome, Julie. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, happy to be here. Thank you. Our specials of our show are called Hollywood Unscripted Stuck at Home because we're all obviously stuck at home. And as an artist who thrives on connection, what has the pandemic been like for you? I left New York City in March. I haven't been back. And I've been in the country. And being in the country allows me to be isolated with Elliot, my other half, who's the composer who I lived with for 35 years. And we take enormously long walks with our dog and have fresh air. And he just finished the Glorious soundtrack last night. And I'm working on two other scripts, both for film and one for film and theater. So that I can do. You know, I don't have to be in rehearsal or on set. So a lot of it is doing press for the Glorias and working on future projects. The Glorias is based on the Gloria Steinem autobiography, My Life on the Road. Can you take us through the genesis of the project? I know it took some time to get off the ground. I was given the book by one of my best friends when I was in Tulum in Mexico on the beach. So she just said, oh, you have to read this. And I went, oh, okay. And I got the book. I knew Gloria Steinem, but not well. And I was just totally taken with her writing, the stories. I had no idea what her early life was like. There are things in her life that are similar to mine, though I'm 20 years younger, so I could identify with what she went through, what she is going through. My mother is very political. She was a chairwoman and ran for state representative and started programs in Massachusetts to get women involved in politics. And she wrote a book called Running Against the Wind. So I've dedicated this movie to her. She's 99.9. She's seen the film five times and loves it, says it's my best film. So there were things about it that I was familiar with, but I didn't think it was cinematic, her book. I thought it was all over the map in a good way, a road book. And I thought, well, you know what? I can't get it out of my mind. And it's probably because her early life with her father and her mother, that felt cinematic. That felt like these relationships, the emotional through line of that. And then the whole idea that travel is the best education. I love that notion of her journeys of her life on the road. So I thought about it. I asked Gloria if I could have the rights and she thought I was out of my mind because it's so not a movie. It's, you know, it doesn't have any dramatic through line. It's journeys all over the place. It's taxi rides. It's canvassing for this senator or starting a magazine, but no linear story. And I said, well, let me just go to it. Let me try. So I had the rights. And then I tried to think of how to do this. And I came up with the notion, first of all, that there would be four Glorias at least. A six-year-old, a 12-year-old. Alicia Vikander plays 20 to 40. Julianne Moore plays 40 to 80. And that instead of having it move along, you know, from young to old, 80 years of this woman's life, I would have them all gathered together 
on this bus that I call a bus out of time. And the Greyhound bus in America is such an archetypal image of journey, of travel across the country. So this was the structure upon which I hung all these disparate stories, these disparate events of her life. The somehow getting on that bus, it's black and white, and moving through the landscapes, even abstract landscapes, keeps the through line going, that it's forever traveling to the next March on Washington. How many did she go to? To the next conference in a city on women's rights, to the next speech she might be giving to a university, to the next talking circle in a women's group in San Francisco. So this bus was the glue. It was the, in musical terms, the light motif. I like that you call it the bus out of time. I had it written down as the bus of life. Yours is better. When you landed upon that idea, how did you find it? Is it like a light bulb where suddenly everything clicks or did it develop slowly? Well, I do this in theater and film. As a designer, you're trained to do this. And as a director, I also do it with actors. And I'll give The Lion King as an example because have you ever seen it on Broadway? Yes. Did you ever see The Lion yeah. King? Okay, so a lot of people out there have. And when I was working on that and knowing that I didn't want to put up a carbon copy of the movie, I thought about what is the main ideograph? It's like in Chinese brush paintings or Japanese brush paintings, they have three strokes to represent an entire bamboo forest. Just, it's an abstraction, a culling down to an essential concept or image. And in The Lion King, it's the circle. It's obvious. The circle of life is the first song. The sun rises, which is round. Mufasa's head mask has this circular bamboo framing around it. The wheels of the gazelle wheel move in circles. The way that Pride Rock circles up out the set designer, he took that idea of the circle, and that's how the mountain comes out of the hole in the ground. So that's easy. Midsummer Night's Dream, in my film and theater piece, it was the bed, the sheets. They kept becoming various things in the play because that's where we dream. The glory is, it became the bus. The bus on a road, a highway with the yellow slashed lines. That's the recurring image. And so it's symbolic, but it's also real at the same time. The motion, the movement, that sometimes there's one Gloria by herself, sometimes two or four. And sometimes there's a whole bus filled with women who hate Gloria Steinem. I want to say that this film is so desperately needed right now, but in truth, it's desperately needed always. And that's kind of the point of the movie and the point that Gloria is always making, that the challenges she tackles persist and come back to them over and over and over again. But what does it mean to have this film coming out at this time of turmoil? When we started the movie, which was before the election four years ago, it was going to be a celebration of the first female president, of course even shot election night at Samantha Power's apartment with Madeleine Albright, Gloria Steinem, and 40 female ambassadors. But it was such depressing footage that I didn't use it. <laughs> it was just awful. The room sagged, you know. Now, right before this election, I mean, we had our premiere at Sundance. That was thrilling. A thousand people got to see it, cheering, standing ovations, all of that. We're desperately sad that it's not in movie theaters, but we had a choice to postpone the wide opening or stream. And we chose streaming because it's necessary before the election, at least a month before we said that people, before they vote and also to inspire people to register and vote. We had planned to be on a Greyhound bus traveling through the swing states now. 
Gloria, myself, and a lot of the actors and other women presenting the film to groups and having talking circles and really talking about what choice means. Like a big part of the film, and this feels more relevant since the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we know that Roe v. Wade is on the chopping block if the Supreme Court is more conservative. And young men and women really have to know how hard that law was fought for, choice. As you see in the movie, in that scene between Dolores Huerta and Gloria at the women's conference, Dolores Huerta was totally a right to life or an anti-abortion. She's Catholic, she had 10 kids, but she comes to a point where she realizes that if the government isn't responsible to helping these women who have birth after birth, who's going to take care of them? Who's taking care of the woman and the child? And if the government is forcing women who do not want to give birth at that time, there has to be a law where a woman carries a baby for nine months. Okay, the father of the baby takes care of the baby for the next nine months. There has to be some equality there. A woman shouldn't be punished if she doesn't want to stop her life at that moment because other people are governing her body and her choice. That's just one aspect. It's the Equal Rights Amendment. We haven't passed that yet. We have to realize that more than the presidency, the Supreme Court has ultimate rule over the future of people's lives. But I would say I'm really concerned about young people who really have a future and they haven't voted yet. A no vote is a vote. That's just it. And they have to realize, because you don't think Biden's all that, you know, hotsy-totsy or whatever, vote against Trump. Everything Obama put in is now gone. We've gone backwards as far as racial equality, female equality, and a proper future for this country, the United States. Well, now it's not. It's the divided states. And that's the way he's playing it. So, yeah, I think, unfortunately, the movie is more important now than it would have been if we were just out there celebrating Hillary Clinton. You know? yeah. It's historical, but it's fun. Did you find it entertaining? I mean, I hope it is. Oh, I loved it. Yeah. By the end, I was full sobbing. So I've been surprised at all the men I know who are more emotionally moved than women I know, because this is about women working together. This is important to me. Women supporting women. On television, on FX and all these stations, there's way too many feuds, as we call them. There's too much cat fights. There's too much drama made out of women competing with each other for attention, jobs, men. This is not about that. Phyllis Schlafly's in our movie, but it's the real woman. We have documentary footage. I didn't want to make it about that because the best part of Gloria Steinem and all those great women is that they love being together. That's the love story. They love what they were trying to do. They succeeded. They had fun. They have humor. And that's a big part of it. At the time of this recording, we are less than a week after Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing, and there is a universal mourning. But I think this is so powerful because it reminds not only all women, but young people especially, that there are still amazing women to look up to and follow their lead. But like you said, they have to be paying attention. How do you think this film will get to the younger audience? And do you think it will inspire them to change or act? Well, it gets to it by people like you, programs like this. You know, we don't have gobs of money. We're not a big Hollywood film. So it's not going to be through that kind of marketing. It's going to be through social media. And our full out trailer came out yesterday. So we had a teaser for a couple of weeks and now there's a trailer. And hopefully you see actors that you love, you know, whether it's Julianne Moore and Alicia Vikander, Janelle Monet, Bette Midler, Lorraine Toussaint, you know, they're fantastic actors. I'm so proud of them in this film. But it's an entertaining film. And you can see that from the trailer. I hope so. I don't find a whole lot 
out there to see. I like to watch television streaming, but I don't see a whole lot of stuff that's gripping me right now, except documentaries, frankly. And so as a drama, I want to be moved and I want to be inspired. Like you talk about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Without people like the women in my movie, and it's not just Gloria, it's why it's called Gloria's, without them making their voices loud for all the voiceless people, Ruth wouldn't have heard the call. I shouldn't say Ruth, I should really say Justice Ginsburg for respect, but she heard it and then the laws were changed. So the power is in the voice that's out there marching, writing, calling, and we have to be so careful that it's not perverted by Trump and his team to say, oh, it's angry and socialistic and violent. The violence is not coming from the peaceful Black Lives Matter movement, not at all. So don't get suckered in to becoming violent because it will be used, you know, it's what happened with the Black Panthers. You know, they couldn't last as soon as they had the guns. The William Barr of the period of that time, the Justice Department closed it down and that will happen now. I mean, when Trump said, I didn't want to scare people about COVID-19, I didn't want to cause a panic. Well, he has no problem trying to cause a panic by saying, they're going to come up and come into your neighborhoods and take your, he has no problem causing a panic. So I don't hear people saying that, but that is his method of using terror to try and sway people to vote for him and using hatred. It's the playbook of all the dictators and people are falling for it. So we really do need young people in particular to get out there and vote and to really make their voices heard. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co Media. Currently 21 years old. And today, I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my dreams. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being it's questioned. It's going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second dice. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones that are... The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in life. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkco.com slash a moment of your time. I want to jump into the production side of the film. This was co-written by Sarah Rule, an amazing playwright, but she hasn't had much experience in film. So how did that collaboration come to be? Well, I wanted someone who was good at emotional scenes and dialogue scenes. I had already started and I already had the concept of the bus out of time and knew that the sort of surreal flights of fancy, I would weave in there later because those are cinematic and that isn't really her bailiwick. But she read the book deeply like I did. We looked at all the documentary footage together and we pulled out the scenes that we thought were really worth elaborating on and writing. So it was a back and forth. And then at a certain point, I needed to make it more cinematic. So I took over the last part and really put in my visual ideas and my crazy ideas into the script. 
What was the collaboration like with the real Gloria in this process? Well, as she'll say, if you ask her, she just is like, I trust you. (laughs) Go ahead. She loved the idea of the four Glorias. She said to me, I don't understand. How did you come up with that idea? How did you know? And I said, no. How did I know what? And she said that I often see my younger self or other self on a street corner or across the room. And I think, well, what would they think if they knew what I know now? What would they have done? Or I feel empathy for them. Because later in other books, she wrote something like that, how she sees her other selves. I never read that book. So this was a wavelength that we must have been on together. And she was always there when I would call her up, you know, like the barbershop scene. That's not in any book. She told us that story because she always wanted to be a dancer. So she talked about how when she was 12 and her mother was really mentally unbalanced, she had tap dance shoes. I mean, she was tap dancing. I don't think she had the shoes and her mother couldn't stand the sound. So she'd do it outside and a little girl came and invited her to a barber shop and gave her tap shoes. And it's where you first see Gloria crossing the racial boundaries where she immediately very easily became friends with this young little girl. And Gloria was there to tell me stories that weren't in the books. And she also helped get Bette Midler. You know, she thought it was a great idea to have Bette. She wrote the letter to Janelle. She was an executive producer from a distance, but She helped in those major points. And she also helped get the money for the film because we couldn't get it from Hollywood. So she went to a not-for-profit organization who had the money and loved her and knew that if there was any money ever made from the sales of this film, the recoupment would go to women's causes. Now, that will not probably happen because we're streaming, sadly. But it's more important for them and for us that people are moved by the movie, that they're really inspired. So that's okay. And the other thing is she met with Julianne and Alicia in my apartment and answered their questions and they listened to her speech patterns and she was accessible. So Helen Mirren once talked about how you use all kinds of elements to encourage a performance. And so I'm really wondering, what did you use with Alicia and Julianne to create Gloria with them and how did they connect over it? They're both formidable actresses who did their research, listened to the tapes, saw the documentaries. We talked about the moments. I think the most surreal moments were I had to coerce them, basically. I mean, I had to explain to them that, no, this isn't real, because these are actors who really are grounded and they like reality. And that sequence where we go into a tornado and the women are the three witches and all of that, I kept saying, no, I understand this isn't reality. This is an inner thought that I'm putting out there dimensionally. And that's one of these things that's very hard for anybody to know until they see it at the end, because they don't see the tornado. They don't know when they're on a wire being a witch being (laughs) thrown around in the studio that it's actually going to look okay. Or if Julianne Moore, for instance, had to run on a conveyor belt on a running machine, she had no image of the highways and the multiple glorias. So that's hard when you're a director and some of the work is actually not understood until the final product. They have to trust me. So I can show them pictures and I can show them ideas, but they need to feel grounded. It's giving them confidence that I know what I'm doing. (laughs) Did they work together? No, they met with Gloria all at the same time, but except for the scenes where they were on the bus together, they never had scenes together and they had their own dialect coaches. So they really were concentrating on their part of being Gloria. And I felt no reason to have them try to be similar. The unifying person is Gloria. That's the thing that connects them. So Alicia's different, just like our younger self is different. Our six-year-old self is different. You have to see that 
you're not full-blown Gloria Steinem with the streaks and the glasses in Ms. Magazine when you're six or when you're 12. That's why I love the scene where Alicia sits next to her on the bus later on and says, didn't you ever want to have children? And the older Gloria says, no. And the young one says, oh, yes, I did. You know, you may not remember, but there was a point where maybe she didn't want them. She just thought she'd have them because even the 12-year-old says, I'm going to have a house and three kids and a golden retriever and a ping pong table in my basement. Because that's what at that age in her life, women were supposed to expect and nothing more. It's good enough. Mm -hmm. So I didn't feel the need that they should match each other. And there was enough matching because the two women can look like the younger Gloria and the older Gloria. And then, of course, the hair. <laughs> okay. So if you were on the Julie's bus out of time, oh God, what's the conversation you would be having with yourself? Wow. I've never thought of that. Such a good question. Which age self? There's the 20s Julie and the 40s Julie and then the now Julie. Well, I know what the eight-year-old Julie would say. I want to be a ice ballerina. <laughs> 17-year-old was interested in anthropology and travel. That's not dissimilar from doing what I'm doing now, you know, which is people. I'm an anthropologist. Mythology, folklore, shamanism. Those are things that I studied back then, and I'm still Rafiki. That's why Rafiki became a woman. I look back at my 22-year-old self in Indonesia and am astounded at certain bravery, certain kinds of things I did, certain foolhardy things as well, like walking on the rim of a volcano that was erupting in Bali. I know I wouldn't do that now <laughs> because I fell and had an accident. So I had blinders on for a lot of my career. I didn't see misogyny. I didn't see sexism. If I let those things enter my view, I wouldn't have been able to get anything done. Now I am much more aware of that. So I have to remind myself now of what I did when I was younger. I don't feel wiser now. I feel a little bit more savvy and maybe cautious. So I have to remember the time I spent four years traveling in Indonesia at a theater company. I did all kinds of things I could never do now. I have to remind myself how I did it. It's like when things are dark and difficult, Spider-Man era was really the lowest point. I go, that's nothing. I was in Indonesia on a volcano that was erupting. I was there where there was a tsunami, where my theater company was staying. I was there when I was the only white woman for four years and felt like an outsider, but still did these things. So for me, I look back at my younger self and she tells me, this ain't anything. Don't worry about it. It also helps me to have perspective on the United States because I've traveled and lived so much outside of this country. And I feel that America is just too full of itself. And that what's happening is it's getting a big slap in the face because the rest of the world is going, what happened? You had the greatest democracy in the world and you're letting it go, you know? So we're on the bus and we're looking back at your career. I want to briefly talk about Lion King because I know you've been talking about it for decades, but it is such a major part of your legacy you created a form of theater that brought people to theater who didn't care about theater, which is just amazing and mind-blowing. And you've launched so many more productions of it. And what is The Lion King to you, I guess, is the question. Well, yes, it's 25 years old now. 90 million people have seen it on every continent but Antarctica. So the penguins, they're not interested, but everybody else. I've done versions in Mandarin, in Shanghai, in Portuguese, in Brazil, in Spanish, in Spain, in Mexico, in all these languages. We've done companies 
in the local language and change the humor accordingly. It's also just another statistic, the most successful entertainment in the history of all entertainment, not just theater, but including film, television. So as a woman, that's pretty awesome. You know, yeah. people don't really know that, but that's the truth more than Star Wars. And this <laughs> and that. We as women hate touting our horn or tooting or whatever you say, but we got to get over that a bit because it does help other women to know that not only did I create something that was entertaining, but that it was extremely successful. But I will say what it did is two major things for me, which is it's given me freedom to do the projects that I want to do because I really have to be passionate about every project. I have to. It takes too much of my everything, everything. You know, I don't have children. I have Elliot, who's my other half for 35 years, happily unmarried. And he's my main collaborator. He's the composer. Yeah. He won the Academy Award for Frida. He did most of the arrangements for Across the Universe and the score. He's done all my theater work except for Spider-Man, so he's now, you know, <laughs> and The Lion King. But we've done opera and everything. So I have tremendous freedom because Lion King is financially successful. But what is more important to me is the spiritual nature of that piece, that it transcends cultural limitations and boundaries. I can go to Japan and because it's a coming of age story, an archetypal story that every culture has, which is the coming of age of a young man, mostly, though I did make Nala's part much more important in the Broadway show as opposed to the movies. I think that this is the connecting thing between us as humans. And that's what art is about. It's to say, People off in India are going to see the Glorias and feel as passionate about this American woman who was inspired by India and what she learned in India as we would be. And so it's this transcultural aspect of the musical that I'm so proud of. And I know this is weird because it is Disney, but it deals with death. And when little kids come, it's what do you call it? It's almost a exorcism of pain. When the little boy turns to his father, Simba to Mufasa, and says, will you always be there for me? The father knows what he's asking. And he says to young Simba, look at the stars. The great kings of the past look down upon us from those stars. They live in you. They live in me. They're watching over everything we see. That's one of my favorite songs that Leboam wrote with the South African chorus. Without being a specific religion, it's a very religious, spiritual in the best way song, which is, I may not be here physically, but I am here with you spiritually. And for a fact, I have had people tell me stories like one that really moved me was about a family from somewhere in the United States who had bought tickets the first year way in advance because they couldn't get tickets to the Broadway production. And the little girl had died in the family that year. And so when they were supposed to come to New York, they didn't want to come. Everybody said, you've got to bring the little boy. You've got to go anyway. So this is what was told to me. They're sitting there with their young son, still in mourning, and watching this scene that I just described. And the little boy turned to his parents and he said, Sarah's with us, isn't she? Yeah. Exactly. I see your face. Now, if I was able in any way as an artist to help that child through mourning, through what death is, then I've done my job as an artist because we were the first shamans. That's what a shaman is. It's a cross between a director and entertainer and a psychiatrist and a leader of the community. And that is the origins of theater. Theater is to take you through the droughts, 
the blizzards, the fires of California, the hurricanes of the South, the misery of our political system. And the entertainment is there to get you to get out your fears, to release you of the tension, and to share that in an environment with other people. The same thing happened with Frida when I was in Australia. A woman told me she had cancer, and then when she saw how Frida dealt with pain, it changed her whole attitude towards what she could do and how she could live through the pain. So these are the important things for me as an artist. It's how we can really help our communities and our fellow human beings through entertainment, but also through thought and stories that get us out of ourselves. Hi, I'm Robert Ross, host of Cars That Matter. You might be wondering what makes a car matter, and I have a feeling you already know the answer. Some cars have changed history. Some you can hear a mile away. Some have lines that make your heart skip a beat. If a car has ever made you look twice, then I think you know the ones that matter. Join me as I speak with designers, collectors, and market experts about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. Cars That Matter, wherever you get your podcasts. Your first feature film was Titus, which what a choice for your first film. What an undertaking (laughs) because the scale was huge and the cast was amazing. What was that experience to have that be your first foray into this medium? Well, I had directed the play off-Broadway before The Lion King, and I had already felt that it was the most daunting Shakespearean play, the most violent thing I've ever seen in my life, horrifying and scary and very of our times. Right after the success of The Lion King, I remember Spielberg offering me the cat in a hat. And I thought to myself, well, if the cat is black, maybe. But more to the point, I felt I don't want people to think of me as a family, children's theater. You know, I just didn't want to be put into any kind of box whatsoever. I knew that Titus was an extraordinary, maligned Shakespeare play. People thought Grand Guignol, over the top. I said, "Uh uh-uh. This is the violence of today, whether it's honor killings, remember the Menendez brothers or Columbine, you know, the surge of violence in America that wasn't just inner city, but was young middle-class people. Oh my God, how did that happen? Now we just take it for granted because school shootings, this is just a hideous part of everyday life in America. But in 98, I think we opened Christmas day, 1999, right before the millennium turn. I thought, I'm going to ask Anthony Hopkins and we're going to make this my first feature, sort of the opposite of The Lion King. (laughs) Although people say The Lion King is based on Hamlet, but whatever. And I loved it. I wanted to work with very great actors in rich language. And we shot on location in Italy. I read that during the shoot and maybe to this day, you and Anthony Hopkins didn't necessarily agree on Titus's mindset. No. It wasn't an easy ride for either one of us together, but as I like to call it, it was like two stones. When they rub against each other, fire happens. So I think that this is very well known, and Tony has said this, that he didn't want to act after Titus. You know, it was sort of the pinnacle and the end of his career. Of course, that didn't stick at all, but that play is so awful. I mean, you have to go to a very dark place. The young boys who played the rapists and were very racist parts to Aaron, the Blackamoor. Aaron the Moor's part 
is very much based on certain things from Iago, the kind of malevolent manipulation and concoctions. But the only two Black roles in the Shakespeare canon are Othello and Aaron the Moor. And Aaron, played by Harry Lennox, is one of the greatest parts with the greatest language. Now, for Hopkins to go to the place where Titus is ready to bake his enemy's children into pies and feed them to his mother is a very dark place. For him to go to a place where he has to experience his hand getting chopped off is hard. And he went there and he went to the madness and it was happening to him as it was going on. So we didn't have a disagreement. It was in front of my eyes. You know, it was scary. And yet I would see the rushes every night and go, my God, this is unbelievable. So I knew that it was going to be great to see. It is one of his greatest performances ever. If people haven't seen Titus, it's just extraordinary. Then you did Frida, and it was spearheaded by Salma Hayek. How did she connect with you? How did you come onto the project, and what was that experience like? Well, I got a call from Mark Gill at Miramax in New York City saying, Salma Hayek is on her way to the airport, but if you will meet her, she would love to talk to you about directing potentially the film of Frida Kahlo's life. And I said, sure. So Salma Hayek, age 34, stunning, still stunning, but she comes into my apartment and, you know, I'm just thinking, well, God, if I were a lesbian, this would be unbelievable. (laughs) (laughs) I probably can't even say that now the same way, but she just was overwhelming physically. And then she sat down on my couch and for two hours told me about Frida Kahlo with knowledge and depth and intelligence and exuberance. And I just sat there because I like Diego Rivera's paintings. I wasn't sure about Frida Kahlo, but I'd spent a lot of time in Mexico with Elliot. We created a piece called Juan Darien. And so I knew Mexican artists. I knew Mexican culture. I loved it. And she made me feel that if she can entertain me for two hours, I surely can do a film and be her midwife, help her get her baby up there. And then I fell in love with it. Once I delved deeply into the material and into her paintings and the autobiography that is in those paintings, and I love the actors that I was able to cast, love them. Alfred Molina, Valeria Golino. It was just a tremendous cast, Jeffrey Rush, all of it. Diego Luna, nobody knew who he was then. What does she say? Hello, ugly. When she has her first love affair at age 15 with him. It was great. It was really great. Selma has since said it was a very hard process because of Harvey Weinstein. I'm not asking any details about that, but I'm really curious, looking back at your work, if that affects your memory of the piece or your feeling toward the piece, or does the piece stand alone away from the experience? Except for when Harvey would show up or in post-production where he tried to manipulate everything. It was a tremendous experience. He wasn't in Mexico all the time, you know, but when he'd come, it was difficult for her and I would have to coax him. I'd have to do that female flattery, playing around, things that you learn so that he doesn't feel like he's not coming up with every idea. I was way too old for him to be interested in me. That didn't happen with me. With Salma, yes, he was extremely disgusting and rude. I don't know all the details of that. I know that he wanted very much to have lots of sex scenes in the movie. He wasn't interested in her limping as if he didn't even know that absolutely the most important event in her life was the bus accident. He was like, why is she limping when he saw that first week of dailies? And it's just shocking, frankly. But I managed because I had such a good team and, and Salma was a great producer. She protected the process and we had fun. It was great. Rodrigo Prieto, who shot the Glorias, shot Frida. And I loved working with my Mexican team. It was just great. 
it was during post that he was unbearable because he just kept wanting to get rid of politics or get rid of the father. And he thinks that he makes a film better. But honestly, that's just ridiculous. Shorter isn't better. Shorter is shorter. And he didn't understand really what it was about that movie that people really loved. He did later. One of my all-time favorite movies is Across the Universe. Me too. <laughs> I cannot tell you how much I love that film. And I actually had the gift of having Jim Sturges on the show a couple months ago. And he was talking about the rehearsal process with you because it was his first film. It was okay because it was a theater rehearsal process where you got to workshop the piece. Oh, it was so great. I went to London to look for Jude, the part, and ended up finding Jude and Max because Joe Anderson auditioned and said, I'm not Jude, can I audition for Max? I said, well, this is weird. Can you do an American accent? He said, yeah, I can. And he just had the energy. He just was Max, he wasn't Jude. So those two who had never been to America came over and tore up New York City. And then we had Evan Rachel Wood, who had just turned 18, I think, was known for the movie 13 and was a complete David Bowie fanatic. And I told her, I'm gonna try and see if I can get David Bowie for Mr. Kite. We didn't. We went for Eddie Izzard, but she would wear his T-shirt. And then the other lead characters, two of them were singers. Dana Fuchs and Martin Luther. They were singers who I auditioned and could really act. And then TV Carpia, who is a fabulous actor-singer. So we had a small band of six musicians. We were in a classic Broadway rehearsal room, a couple of rooms. We played around with Danny Ezrelo, the choreographer, whose birthday it is today. Happy birthday, Danny. I have to call him up after this. And we had about 15 phenomenal dancers who worked on all the different concepts. Then there's a thousand dancers in the film. But, you know, you had to work them out ahead of time. And then that core group would then teach everybody else. But it was so much fun. Elliot worked on the arrangements and then T-Bone Burnett joined in. And we had to record in advance the tracks. Although 90% of the movie is sung live and way before Les Miserables. In fact, they acted like they were the first, but frankly, they did less live than we did. But you had to have it be live. We wanted it. But even if it's live, you have an earbud in there just in case there's too many airplanes. Some of the locations, you just can't get good enough sound. Mm -hmm. But it was so much fun. And, you know, eventually, yes, I would love to do it as theater. We'll see. I saw that Evan Rachel Wood showed up to her first day on set and it was If I Fell and she wasn't aware that she would be singing live. That's exactly right. She thought that because we had pre-recorded that she would be lip syncing. I said, don't worry, Evan, it's always there in case there's a problem. Like Joe didn't like singing live because he really didn't think he was a singer at all. Fact is, he's a fabulous singer and he sang live in all the rehearsals, but we were really able to mix it. If I Fell in Love with You is not only brilliant, but it was her first take. And why I say it was brilliant is we were going to make a cut from that first location in a kind of broken down building to the party much earlier. And we'd set up a circular track around her. So it's no editing. It's one shot where the camera moves around her. And her singing was so brilliant and her acting that I said, don't cut, don't cut. You know, we just kept moving. So much more of the song is sung in one shot. And it's the fear and fragility which is perfect for that moment when she's looking at Jude and she's not sure that she can handle falling in love with him. It's so real that I didn't need any other takes. 
just like the Glorias, it's kind of this piece that's always relevant because the cyclical nature, we're back in these riots and these young people being awakened to activism. And she has this line, I should be radical. You should be radical. We should all should be, all be radical. radical. <laughs> it just rings so true now. When he tries to say, as many people are saying now, you know, are you kidding? You won't get anywhere. It won't change anything. And she gets really angry. Remember in the laundromat where she says, listen, I would lie down in front of a tank if it would bring Max home. You don't think it's worth trying? That's the moment that they fall apart. Yes, she's not going off to war, but the responsibility of everybody to have the government listen. The Vietnam War, because young men were drafted, they became more involved because it was affecting them personally. You know, if we had a draft now, people would be much more out there in the streets. As Gloria said at the Women's March, she said, sometimes pressing send is not enough. Your voice and your activism is critical. And I'm so proud of the people who have gone out on the streets in this very scary time, put on their masks and marched for the Black Lives Matter movement. This is incredibly impressive, moving, critical. And they should be marching for women's rights and racial rights and all of those rights now. If they're not marching, then they're making phone calls and saying, listen, guys, we've got to vote because this is going to be the rest of this generation's future and the next generation. I want to wrap up on my favorite question to ask. What does it mean to you to have a life in storytelling? Wow. It is my life. Your life is to use whatever talent I have or imagination I have to make other people's lives fulfilled, to entertain and to move them. That's kind of what as I said, when I talked about The Lion King, what gives me the most joy is people's reactions. I know women, a lot of women will identify and love this. But when I've had some of the men around me right at the beginning, like the sound designer in post, when Michael told me how he just was weeping through the whole movie, I was so touched. And that's happened more than once. Because think about it. Men don't see movies about women in the workplace, just women. Most movies about women or girls is about, I want this boyfriend, my husband's beating me, I wish I could marry him, it's a romance, you know, this boss is stepping over the line. Whatever it is, their lives are geared towards their male partners. I made a choice like Gloria did in her book that this is about women moving together in this movement and that the men are secondary characters. Not that they're not important to Gloria's real life, of course they are, but you can only focus on one aspect. And so when the men say that, I feel so gratified because the idea that this would be a chick flick or this would be something just for women, although women are half the population, is so ridiculous. This is about people. If you're a feminist, you can be male. It doesn't mean you're a woman. And feminists are not anti-male. They're about equality. Pure and simple is that you respect both genders equally. And I love this reaction and I love their surprise because it's new to them to see women working like that and loving like that, loving each other, supporting each other. Julie, I cannot thank you enough for taking time out of your day to come talk to me. This has meant the world to me because I am such a fan. Jenny, thank you. It's been terrific. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Hollywood Unscripted was created by Kurt Co. Media. This special episode of the Stuck at Home series was hosted and produced by me. Jenny Curtis. With guest, Julie Taymor. Co-produced and edited by Jay Whiting. The executive producer of Hollywood Unscripted is Stuart Halperin. The Hollywood Unscripted theme song is by Celeste and Eric Dick. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any special episodes of Hollywood Unscripted Stuck at Home. 
And we want to hear from you. Leave us a rating and a review. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. Maybe we can be better. Stay safe and healthy. And thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind. Media.